0: Our scripture lesson for this morning, for the seventh Sunday in the season of Easter, yes, it is still Eastertide, believe it or not. Um, it goes on forever and ever and ever. Uh, comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for God's word to you. This is Luke writing, and he says, In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things Jesus did and taught, from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria And to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sights. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the sleep experts tell me that one of the best ways to ensure that you get a good night of sleep is to not play too much on your phone before bed. Um, And I think that's sound advice, and yet I can't seem to help myself when I'm trying to wind down for the night laying in bed to scroll through social media, to surf the internet, and to get lost in rabbit trails on the YouTube app on my phone. Um, and then I wonder why I'm tired the next day. I remember one particular night, I think it was probably four years ago now, where I was watching one of the late-night comedy shows that I sometimes enjoy watching, and, and the guest that evening was the magician David Blaine. And so David Blaine comes out, there's some small talk banter between him and the host, and, and then David Blaine says that he likes to perform uh, magic tricks that elicit a strong reaction from the audience, that he could perform any kind of magic trick and people's reactions would be muted, but he likes to to shock people. And so he says, on that note, I brought with me here to, uh, this evening an ice pick. And yeah, that groaning went across the audience in that evening show too. And there's some concern on the face of the host. And so he, he hands the ice pick to the host and says, I want you to check and make sure that this is a real ice pick. And so the host checks it. The, the tip is, is sharp and uh, doesn't retract back into the handle and all that stuff. He said, okay, great. This is a real ice pick. And so I've been working on this trick for 13 years now, but I'm able to take this ice pick, stick it into the top of my hand and through my hand and not cause any injury. And he goes, you ready, to, you ready for me to perform this magic trick? And so he does. He takes the ice pick and he starts to stick it into the top of his hand. The audience is shrieking as he does this, and he kind of pushes it almost all the way through. And then he pulls it back out. If you're squeamish, I should have given you a, a warning on this. <laughs> Some of you don't pass out. Is there an, a doctor in the building? Um, pushes almost all the way through his hand, pulls it out, and there's no injury. And, and I, I'm watching this, and I'm like, there's, I'm a little grossed out, but I'm like, there's no way in the world David Blaine can stick an ice pick into his hand. It doesn't cause any injury to the vascular system or the nervous system in his hand. And so it was about 11 o'clock at night, I think, at that point, point, I decided to take a, a detective search to figure out how David Blaine was able to do this magic trick. And so I, I typed into YouTube, David Blaine ice pick trick revealed. And what happened is I ended up on this little rabbit trail of figuring out how all of the greatest magic tricks uh, of history are revealed. There was, this, there was this show that used to be on called Magic's Greatest Secrets Revealed. And so I ended up watching a bunch of videos for those, you know, figuring out how those things actually happen. You know, the, the famous one of the magician's assistant who saw it in half. And, and then I ended up on one about the, the levitation magic trick. You know, the one where the magician seemingly floats off the ground? Uh, so how the show worked is that they would uh, they would show the magic trick as it would appear if we were sitting in the audience watching watching the show. And so the magician comes out on stage, and then uh, the two lovely assistants come out, and they stand on either side of him, and then the, the magician seemingly levitates off the ground. And then they uh, pass this steel frame around the magician to show that there's no wires or anything. Um, So then what the show does is they take you through how this actually happens. So uh, when the magician walks out, he has uh, two magnets underneath his coat jacket. Um, And then as um, as the lovely assistants come out, they're distracting us. And so there's a forklift in the back of the wall behind where the magician is that has the magnets on it that comes through. And then it lifts him off the ground. Abracadabra, right? Uh, The seemingly physics-defying feat has a logical explanation to it. It's magnets, it's distraction, it's sleight of hand, it's an illusion. So as I approach this story that we've come to know as the ascension here this morning, where Jesus seemingly takes the cloud elevator back up to heaven, I find myself wanting to find the magnets... What's the reasonable, logical explanation for how this happened? Uh, But of course, we don't have to take this story as being literally true. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us if it was literally true. We don't understand the universe or heaven to be up there beyond the sky, so to speak, anymore. Uh, In the words of one theologian, if this was a a literal story and Jesus was going up into the sky, he would still be stuck in orbit, right? Um, We don't have to take this to be a, a literal story. But it is as the United Methodist Bishop Will Willemann says, that it's not as if Luke is a a newspaper reporter who's out there reporting the facts of the day. He is an artist. He's painting a picture. He's writing a poem for us, a picture that always has deeper meaning than the facts of what's being presented to us. So this is a a story that is deeper than just the, the literal things that we read in that story. And Luke's point is this, is that After Jesus' crucifixion, after his death, after his resurrection, he spends 40 days with his disciples. And then after that, he goes back to God. That just as Jesus came to us the first time and lived with us, showed us how to live, carried on his ministry, Jesus now goes back to where he came from. But Jesus' return back to God leaves one really big unanswered question in the minds of those 120 followers of Jesus who are there as he ascends back to God. And they ask him that question. They say, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And really this is a question of, is this the time when you are going to make our nation great? Is this the time when you're going to bring back those glory days of old, the the kingdom of our ancestor David, to make us like it used to be? Is this the time when you're going to overthrow the Romans, kick out the corrupt temple establishment, and to make us the the superpower of of all the world? Really, this is a question that's being asked of Jesus. Is this the time where you're going to finally reveal yourself to be the Messiah of power, the Messiah of domination, the Messiah of authority over people? Of course, this is, not a new question. This is a question that Jesus has faced his entire life, his entire ministry. At the very outset of his ministry, between his baptism and his first sermon, Jesus goes out into the wilderness of temptation, and that, that voice of temptation comes to him and says, you could be the one world ruler, so to speak, which I'm sure is kind of a hyperbole, but you could be have all power and authority given to you if you but sell your soul to the ideas of domination. Jesus, of course, rejects all of that. Time and time again in the Gospels, as Jesus performs these healing miracles, it says that the crowds want to make Jesus king by force. They want to make him a king of their own designs, a king of power, the Messiah that they all have been longing for. And each time, Jesus slips away from the crowds. There's this great story in the Gospels where uh, James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee, Uh, who are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder because they have really bad tempers. Uh, They come to Jesus in front of all the other disciples, and they say, Jesus, we have one request of you, that you would allow us to sit on your right and your left hand when you become king. And all the other disciples are angry with James and John, not because of the question, but because they didn't get to ask it first. Uh, There's another version of the story where, um, where it's James and John's mom who asks Jesus this question, uh, which I think is just a hilarious little spin on the story. Um, and so when they make this request of Jesus, Jesus says, are you ready to drink of the cup that I uh, have to drink from? Are you ready to be about sacrifice and giving yourself for other people? See, James and John have this image in their heads of, of sitting in a throne room, but Jesus has the image of giving his life for other people. And then again, on the last night of his life in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is sitting with his disciples celebrating that meal that we've come to know as the Last Supper, and they're, they're squabbling with each other once again like siblings at the dinner table, saying, which one of them is the best? Which one of them is the greatest? And Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles rule over one another as tyrants, but that's not how it's going to be among you. The greatest among you is the one who serves. And then, of course, John tells us that Jesus, during after that supper, uh, gets a, a basin and a towel and he washes the feet of each and every one of his disciples and says that this is the way you are to conduct your lives. This is the way that people will know you're my followers by the, the sort of servant kind of love that you show to others. And then, of course, as they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the mob of soldiers comes to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter thinks, Peter who always leaps before he looks, right, and uh, Peter thinks that what Jesus needs in this moment is for him to defend Jesus. And so he grabs his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And and Jesus says, put your sword away. Don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels, the the armies of heaven, so to speak, to defend me. That's not how it's going to be. And of course, on the cross, the, the religious leaders are deriding Jesus, saying, if you really are the Messiah, show us an act of power, come off the cross. Jesus shows them a very different sort of power. He instead shows them the power of enemy love and forgiveness. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Time and time again, Jesus throughout his life displays a very different sort of power, a power that is about sacrifice and a power that's about self-giving, a power that's not about domination over other people, but it's a power that's with people. It's the, the power of enemy love and forgiveness. That's the sort of of power that, that Jesus wants to instill in all of his followers, most of all into his disciples. And yet there is this lingering question in their minds. Hey, Jesus, when are you actually going to be the Messiah we all want you to be? They're still longing for, waiting for that Messiah of power. And so as Jesus goes up the heavenly elevator, so to speak, the disciples look up into heaven watching him. And maybe they're mesmerized by the spectacle of all that. We can at least give them that. But they're also looking into heaven at this point because they're waiting for Jesus to come back to fulfill this lingering desire that they have, this lingering desire for a Messiah of conventional power. And a lot of that gets, continues on in our doctrines of the second coming. So as soon as Jesus leaves, there's already this conversation about when is Jesus going to come back? And I think a lot of what has captivated our attention, at least within Western Christianity as a whole, is that when Jesus comes back, he is going to be that Messiah of power. Some of you all remember the 20 years ago now, the, the Left Behind series. Um, and don't take this as an endorsement of those books at, at all. Um, what's, what's enshrined in those books is this idea that Jesus is going to come back and he is going to be this Messiah of conventional and because we have had this sort of lingering desire, desire for this Messiah of power, this Messiah of domination, it has sort of given us a messy relationship with power. The church throughout its history has had this kind of messy relationship uh, with power. This is especially true when it comes to uh, our relationship with political power, um, the emperor Constantine, the Roman emperor Constantine in the fourth century has caught a lot of blame for this in the last maybe 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, in the fourth century, Constantine first legalizes Christianity, which sounds like a weird idea, but then he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so for the first time in its history, at least within the Western world, Christianity has that power that that lingering question desires. And it creates this really messy relationship, Right? Um, there's a preacher, uh, Tony Campolo, he's always known for these really wonderfully colorful statements. Um, he said that when you mix the church with political power, it's like mixing ice cream with cow manure. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't do much to the cow manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. this messy relationship with power. And I, and I think what concerns me quite a bit as I watch the unfolding of news, uh, things in the news, is that it seems like that lingering desire is still really there, that desire for that Messiah of power, that Messiah of domination. Throughout much of the last century, the, the church was really drawn into the various expressions of, of nationalism, not patriotism, nationalism across the, across the world. And those things still exist here today. We still see them popping up. Uh, Recently, we've seen the idea of what's called Christian nationalism. The idea that the United States is a white Christian nation and it must remain that. A, A claim that I think is verifiably false. But this willingness to grasp on, to hold on to power. Or more recently too, how certain segments, vocal minority segments of the church have become kind of the the foot soldiers in the culture war, thinking that what Jesus wants for them is to, to make everyone fall in line with their vision of the world, their narrow ideas of what the world should look like. And not even all Christians agree on that. This messy relationship with power. The church, I think, has always struggled with that, and it begins there on the mountain of ascension, this this is this lingering question of when are you going to be the Messiah? We all want you to be Jesus. And really what it does is it turns Christianity into a sort of magic trick, a little sleight of hand where all the things that Jesus did throughout his life are really an illusion and we end up getting the Messiah we want in the end anyway. And so as the The 120 followers, this earliest expression of the church, are are staring up into heaven, uh, watching Jesus as he goes. Two men in white robes, uh, and we can maybe guess that they're angels. I don't know how many of you walk around in white robes. Uh, Two men in white robes come to uh, these 120 followers as they're gazing into heaven and says, Hey, stop looking into heaven. Jesus, who you just saw go from you, will come back to you in the same way that you saw him go. And that phrase really captures my attention, that Jesus will come back to us in the same way that we saw him go, that Jesus will always and forever be the same Messiah that he was as he walked among us, that Jesus will always be the Messiah of servant power, of the power of love, of the the power of of solidarity with, the power of, of risking your life for other people that is always and forever who Jesus will be. And whatever it means for Jesus to come back the next time, the second time, that is how we will find him. We will find him just as he went from us. And so these two men in white, these two angels say, stop staring up into heaven, stop looking for the Messiah of power, But rather, get busy doing all the things that Jesus did throughout his life. Get busy caring for the poor. Get busy uh, caring for those who are unjustly treated. Get busy feeding the hungry. Get busy clothing the naked and visiting the prisoner. Because that's where you're going to find Jesus when he comes back anyway. And quite frankly, we don't have the time to be staring into heaven looking for a Messiah of power. There are too many people who are hurting and wounded in this world. There are too many people who are are hungry, not only for their daily bread, but for some good news. There are are too many people who are the victims of unjust systems. We don't have time to be staring into heaven waiting for that Messiah of power. Because Jesus is going to come to us just as he left us. Messiah who serves, a Messiah who washes feet, a Messiah who loves the outcast and the broken. That's where we'll find him. And may it be that's where he finds us too. Thanks be to God. Amen.